Welcome to part two of Pushed Out with Dr. Ryan Pilgrim. How did, why are the mills here, right? It's not an accident that the mills are here. Why is the railroad coming through here? Who benefits from that? Um, and I think the other important thing to recognize, and I do, this is again in chapter two, is who the workers were in those mills and, um, and in the um, logging camps. So the logging camps were during winter when it was easier to slide, to use gravity and um, snow to move the timber around. Um, those were largely um, Scandinavian immigrants who were working in those. Um, it was extremely dangerous work. It required 8,000 calories a day to um, function. Those workers um, lived in bunks without running water for months, like four to six months at a time. They were lice infested, right? So highly exploitive labor conditions. And there was a huge, huge labor movement in North Idaho. Um, I highly recommend the novel, The Cold Millions, if you wanna read a little bit about that labor history in North Idaho. Um, there's also other great work looking at um, labor activism in the mines um, in Wallace. Um, the timber wars of 1918 happen, and workers actually gain a tremendous number of rights during this period through really effective collective organizing um, with their unions. And we see, um, then of course there's the Great Depression, and we come out of the Great Depression and World War II, that period, and there's a, actually a lot of prosperity in North Idaho for working class people. And I have a lot of interviews in my books with people whose family logged and in North Idaho during that period or worked at the mills and talking about, you know, I was a stay at home mom, my husband worked in the mill um, and we were financially solid, right? And so trying to understand, well, why was that? It's because of the way the land was taken from indigenous people um, the land is valuable because of how indigenous people have um, cared for it and the exploitation then of uh, working class whites, uh, many immigrant communities and um, others, which if you want to learn more, you should read book chapter two in my book. Okay, so what happens then? So this is how the space gets created. What happens then? So um, this all changes, so this prosperity that I described, kind of this post-World War II prosperity, um, changes in the 1980s. I, it's worth noting, too, that Idaho is the only state that becomes right to work and makes it difficult for um, unions to organize in the 1980s. So Idaho is the only state that becomes right to work in the 1980s, right, when a lot of mills are unionizing, which is exactly what happens in Dover. The mill unionizes, I think, in 19. 88 and closes down six months later. Um, and the 80s are a time of a, it's so interesting to me because if you live in the West, you know the 80s are a time of a lot of economic crisis. Um, not, so there's, you know, in cities, a lot of prosperity. They talk about the prosperity and sort of greed and of the 1980s, but in rural communities in the West, it's a time of a lot of economic hardship. So we see the farm crisis and we see significant changes to the mining and timber industries. The most significant, I argue, and least discussed is um, due to automation and consolidation. So between 1979 and 2006, the number of mills in North Idaho shrank from 133 to 38, which probably makes sense to people living up here, right? We saw the mills closing. Um, 
However, the amount of lumber produced in North Idaho increases in nearly every reported period between 79 and 2006. From 900,000 board feet in 79 to 1.8 million board feet in 2006. And I quit in 2006 because that's when the housing market crashed. Um, these seeming contradictions are explained by the closure of small mills and the growth of much larger ones that needed fewer people to do the same work because of this rapid mechanization of the industry. Like during the 60 years earlier when workers demanded compensation for their labor, the industry responded with rapid technological intervention to replace humans with machines. Um, one researcher found nationwide during the 80s production in Lumber mills rose by almost 2% a year and employment in those same mills declined by 2% a year. Um, and those are all, if you want those citations, they're all in my book. Um, you could also email me, I'd be happy to send those to you. Um, so Dover is faced with this sort of economic crisis, the mill closes. They're also faced with many other crises. So they're faced with a water crisis. When the mill closes, um, it sells to, an it's a, it sells to a developer or landholder, it's not really clear. Um, and that developer sends out a letter to all the residents and tells them that, the, that their purchase of the mill, the mill happens to provide water to everyone in Dover. So the mill had laid the water lines and the, had the pump and provided the water to Dover. They let the people of Dover know through a letter that their purchase of their water was incidental and they were gonna turn it off. The people of Dover immediately responded and found sort of this loophole law that said as long as they paid for their water, they could not be turned off. So it was fascinating to be sitting in interviews with residents and they could pull out canceled checks from that period to prove that they had paid their water bill because they were so afraid that their water was gonna be turned off. The um, developer who bought the mill at that time um, responded by saying, okay, well, we bought it as is and we're not doing any repairs. The water system at the time was described by one engineering firm that came in um, as something more akin to something you would see in a third world country. Um, it was put under, the city of Dover was put under a boil order. That boil order lasted for six years. On top of that, um, so they would have to boil their water to use it. Um, anytime the power went out, it meant the pump also went out and their water um, and they would have to send someone down to bail all the water out of the pump house and try and restart the water pump. So this is, I always like this picture. It's from the spokesman review of Craig Hoffmeister who was a city councilor at the time who worked with adults with developmental disabilities, which he goes into great, makes a great point in the article. Like that's his background. That's what he's trained to do, trying to get the water turned on so that the um, city of Dover has water at Christmas time. So residents can't sell their homes because they're under the spoiler order. Um, let's see. Um, and not only that, um, the city of Dover also faces a crisis with their sewer system. So, um, well, they don't really have a sewer system. They have a leach field. Uh, most people have septic tanks but it's bubbling up affluent into the watershed. And so they get red tagged, meaning they can build no new homes. Um, ironically, sorry, this is a little bit out of order here. Um, the mill burns down not too long after it's sold um, or 
not too long after the city of Dover finally got its water system fixed. So the city of Dover was under boil order for six years. They um, had to incorporate and then apply for loans for a low-income community to rebuild their water system. So that took quite a long time. As soon as it's built, the mill burns down. Um, and the mill had turned off the water to many of the hydrants that they had maintained, but they hadn't let the fire department know. So um, they were doing some salvage work on the, um, some of the mill site to get prepare it maybe for development, um, which sparked a blaze. Um, I, this chapter was really interesting to write because there was a lot of speculation. Um, I know somebody in the community had recently called the EPA to, um, to report that the um, work being done on the community they thought violated some of the rules of, uh, that the EPA had allowed. And um, like two days later, the mill burned down. So the newspaper articles um, from that period are really, really interesting. And I quote from them pretty extensively in the book. Right, so create the space. And then the space is literally, both sort of literally and sort of figuratively destroyed, right? You don't provide water to the community. Um, you require, don't support their efforts to um, rebuild their sewer system. So one of the things that was shocking to me and trying to figure out, well, how did the development happen, right? And there's all these theories, people are talking about why it got rezoned. And what I figured out through archival research is that Dover was rezoned because the city got a loan to rebuild their sewer system, but it required somewhere to put a sewer plant. They needed like 13 acres to build a sewer plant. So they intended to use eminent domain to rebuild their sewer plant. And they sent a letter to the mill um, owner, developer, whoever is um, has it at that point, and tells them that they would like to purchase their um, 13 acres to build this sewer plant at market prices. Um, and the developer says, nope, not unless you rezone it for a planned use development. And the city of Dover said, nope, we're not going to do that. And essentially what happens is a judge decides that in order for the city of Dover to get those 13 acres to build their sewer, that they have to rezone their community for a planned use development. And what's fascinating about this, so this happens, I think, in 1996. I'm trying to look at my articles here. Um, what's fascinating about this is a number of things, right? So the reason that the city of Dover sort of went along with it was that these loans are difficult to get and they have timelines attached to them. So the city of Dover was up against this timeline that if they didn't use the funds, if they didn't have a plan in place to use the funds, the funds would be pulled. They also had homes that were red tag, meaning it was very difficult for them to sell their home. So um, they were sort of in this crisis moment. I also just personally thought it was really fascinating that this happened so quickly that most people in the community did not realize that the planned use development had been put into place in 1996 because there's not really a development plan that goes into place until um, the mid 2000s. So really the, um, and there were a number of, um, sort of strings attached to that USDA loan that the city of Dover thought meant that the, made it difficult for that land to be um, built on, to be developed. So the USDA put restrictions on building within the 100-year floodplain. Um, so you couldn't connect to the sewer if you were building within the 100-year floodplain. And a lot of um, the Dover, um, a lot of the development is built on the 100-year floodplain. 
and then um, they were able to get around that by buying out the USDA loan for that portion of the project, right? So really interesting things um, that show that by creating crisis, infrastructural crisis, um, it made the city of Dover have to make decisions and push them into um, having court cases ruled against them. Um, so think of build, destroy, and then development to create um, openings for fresh accumulation of wealth for people outside the area to come in. Um, I'm gonna read you a short um, portion of the conclusion and just like in the introduction, I'll have some images um, that I put behind that, mostly of the development. So Mill Lake is a simulacra for Oh, and the Mill Lake is the pseudonym I give for my um, for the development. Mill Lake is a simulacra for the American West that never existed. Mill Lake is old-timey street lamps and fountains set against the scenic beauty of the river and the mountains. Mill Lake is a sparkling new Dover City Hall that sits at the lake's edge with vaulted ceilings and exposed beams, showing off timber that at one time would have been harvested by Dover residents and processed at the Dover Mill. Today probably came from Canada. Milling means realtors rushing around looking for the omnipresent um, moose to entice buyers with what they call a mill lake moment and hoping the, the moose doesn't charge them when they find it. What is missing from the simulacra, of course, are the people of Old Dover, who in small and large ways are erased from the community. Each single change is magnified against a backdrop of historic changes. Today in Old Dover, a maroon 4-H bus sits in someone's yard. It's half storage unit, half garden statue, a reminder of a time when a small community could fill a bus with kids and head to a neighboring community equally full of kids. In Mill Lake, streets are named after the old timers whose families settled in Dover 100 years ago, but whose children cannot afford to live on the streets that bear them. What happened in Dover is happening across the Pacific Northwest and the American West more broadly. Communities that undergo processes like this are sometimes referred to as lucky, since the alternative is often to be essentially raced off the map. The winners of these processes talk about rural revitalization, but the process is inherently unequal. Wealth only returns to areas that were previously exploited in a boom and bust cycle by people who accumulated wealth elsewhere. When wealth returns, it must extract the resources of the community again. But now, instead of clearing timber, workers clear tables, and they fight to survive in an especially exploitive service economy. In Idaho, 2020, the minimum wage for tipped workers is $3.35 an hour. For residents of Old Dover, this doesn't feel much like a revitalization. But the processes and histories that brought Mill Lake to Dover and other developments to other communities are often hard to discern. They are obscured behind the notion that the market is a natural force sweeping across the region in ways that cannot be altered. It leads to anger from working class people, but it's anger coupled with frustration and often apathy. The folks of old Dover learned long ago that their rights as a community were never going to outweigh the prospects of profit. They had gleaned stability and prosperity when their labor was key to making those profits. But now that landowners profited by marketing the scenic beauty of the landscape, there's no longer a place for them. And they have resigned themselves to seeing this as progress. Sometimes 
this anger at the injustice of the system finds its ways to people like environmentalists, despite evidence indicating that the timber companies competing in a global market themselves abandon these communities in order to profit elsewhere. The anger is then amplified by those who claim that tourist-based economies are more environmentally sound than extractive industries, which is a debatable claim. But more importantly, such claims suggest that the human suffering of the people left behind is an acceptable price to pay to protect the natural world. It suggests that having a beautiful place to tootle around on a motorboat or ski is more important than people's ability to provide for their families. Against these debates, it bears repeating that the market is not a natural force. The practices and policies that we loosely call the free market are anything but free, and they are created by people who benefit from them in order for their interests to seem natural. Across time and throughout history, most people have lived in arrangements that did not lead to these kinds of boom and bust cycles that have gripped the American West. And it is possible to create a future that does not rely upon them. And I just want to end um, with some images of sort of historic pictures of Kalispell people and um, contemporary pictures of Kalispell people. Because I think it's important to remember that for most of human history in North Idaho, these boom and bust cycles were not normal. Um, this is an image of Kalispell and a number of Salish tribes. Um, um, doing a return trip up the river um, from Washington up to the Sandpoint City Beach that happened in 2017. It was one of the first, um, I think in like a hundred years that that had happened. So there are different ways of envisioning our future. And I think that's um, one of the things my project does. This tells us that in order to create a different future, we have to first envision that. In order to envision that, we have to have a full understanding of how we got here. Um, thanks for, if you've listened this far, um, I hope, you go to your local library. You do not have to buy my book. Go to your local library and ask them to get a copy or hopefully they already have a copy. Um, check it out, read it at your library. Um, feel free to reach out with, to me if you have questions. I'm always happy to talk about this. This has been a really um, important project for me personally. <laughs>